All right, here we are. The Data Protection Breakfast Club. The Three Amigos episode. One of my, my favorite all-time movies. Uh, you pointed out very un-PC un movies. A little so, racist, but uh, it's a fun. PC movie, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, some, but, but really the point is that uh, we have our really, really good friend Vivek Narayandas on the show with us. Uh, we are the three amigos, the privacy amigos, and so we've been waiting a long time to have this episode. Um, he's such a such a smart, thoughtful, uh, intelligent, kind, uh, yeah, kind, nice person. Guy. He's so thoughtful. I mean, the thing is, like, he's humble too, right? So it's like, like I'm never, you know, I can be boastful, obviously. Like he's very humble and kind of soft spoken, but every time he he. He's a very substantive, brilliant thinker, and just one of the nicest people ever. He is, and he'll surprise you. You know, when, when he, he's uh, generally mild-mannered, and then he'll tell you that he ate a cobra's eyeball you know, <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a trip, and you go, well, <laughs> how did that happen? Or he'll get really fired up on a topic in, in, in a positive way, or, or in a, I want to break this down, you know, kind of way. So he's just... Uh, truly uh one of the sharpest there is yeah absolutely and like you know when his role is a little different now because it's broader than just privacy and well i'm sure we'll talk about that but like when he was at rubicon project um you know and i used to get together from time to time and just talk strange ad tech like narrow issues and like i always felt a little out of my depth like he knows he knows a lot about a lot of things that like in our space for sure. Like it's, you know, I feel like I know a little bit about a lot of stuff. He knows a lot about a lot of stuff, you know, like he just knows things. So yeah. um, in, 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 in the rare instances where he doesn't have the depth, again, his humility is like, oh, I don't know. let's go find out. I don't know. Yeah. On, on this with Rubicon, the supply side of the advertising technology is particularly challenging. So it was, I was always impressed by his ability to, to work through that technology too. We have a lot of t smart tech lawyer friends. He's up there for sure. Yeah, and I think he's the only ad tech guy I know in San Diego. Like, <laughs> probably. <one of> them. <laughs> you know, he lives in San Diego with his family. And I, I, I doubt that there's a robust ad tech community. Maybe there is, you know, somebody say it in the comments, but I, I, I think he's, he's out there on his own. <laughs> there's no uh, real time surf ads being, being shown. So, I doubt there's much of a market in San Diego, but all right, here it is. This is our Three Amigos with Vivek. Let's do it. All right, here we are, Data Protection Breakfast Club. Uh, one of the episodes we've been looking forward to, The Three Amigos, starring The Three Amigos, The Three Privacy Amigos. Uh, three, three of us have been through a lot together, so we're really excited to to talk to you, Vivek Narayandas, the Associate GC of IP Privacy, Data Protection, and Litigation at Shopify. Did I get it all? I think so. Thanks. It's a lot Andy. in there. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a, a lot. Basically, he's not very busy. So, yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, well, um, we always do a little bit of backstory first. So um, let's start with, uh, let's start with about how we met first, and then we'll we'll get into you also. Um, I first met you at an NAI summit event um, 
in New York City, I think, and or, or I think it was San Francisco. San Francisco, <laughs> the 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 years blend together, I suppose. But um, I don't know. I just knew right away, like, uh, so so you were at Rubicon Project. I was at DataZoo, both in the ad tech world at the time. The NAI's the Network Advertising Initiative Summit. <clears throat> it was one of the first few that I'd been to, and uh, so I was still like, <clears throat> like learning the industry. And uh, I just remember we hit it off right away, like un understood right away that uh, that you were <laughs> you were uh, inquisitive, liked learning, uh, understood how complex this space was and how important it was to be able to bounce questions off each other. So um, I've always appreciated that. We've, we've been able to continue that relationship, too. So, yeah, man, I, I will say on my end, it was pretty evident from day one that both of you guys, uh, you know, it, it was it was an opportunity for me to learn and have conversations just at a level um, that I wasn't having with many people around issues that were kind of very relevant to my immediate work. And I've enjoyed continuing those conversations over, over the years. Yeah, I think I introduced you two. Is that right? Yep. I think so. Was it in Boston? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, yeah. Got, <clears throat> we got a couple of us pre-GDPR decided that GDPR was so impactful and ad tech was so complicated that we needed to have a series of conversations with people like Vivek, like you just described, that were willing to kind of <clears throat> figure out, figure that, that this stuff wasn't competitive. It was just like all these issues need to be talked through and resolved because there's um, a lot of, a lot of detail and difficulty, especially with the complexity of the technology. When we got together in Boston, we, and we had a, a small group, uh, like, I think it was only like six or seven people. Yeah. And you guys remember who was there? I know the the GC from um, from Spot Exchange was there. I don't remember. I think I honestly don't remember. <clears throat> Denise Butler from my team at from Oracle was there. Uh, well, I know Denise came to our panel we did that night. That's right. And you invited Amin Haddad also. That's right. Amin, that's right. That's right. I knew that there was a time they some Oracle people came. I just remember having a good dinner. Man. I remember eating some good food at some like classic Boston type place, and, and you know, making here's, so, here's what's so funny. Do you know what that place is called? No clue. Copa, C O P P A. There's like a tapas. <laughs> That's amazing. Like Italian Italian tapas, but what's so funny is it's it's the privacy law. <laughs> I didn't even think about that until right now. That I didn't pick that i just that place is just really good that's what it was yeah, great that, was that place was good and i think you and i sat next to each other at dinner and i remember you just hit it off talked about all kinds of stuff uh you know beyond privacy which is which was anyone else there or just the three of us i think it was just the three of us i think so man yeah i think it's just the three of us at dinner yeah yeah man when when i knew it was meant to be was that panel after the meeting when we got that question do you guys remember that question that pedro got and uh his just the response oh it was perfect it was just a crazy question and you treated it that way yeah it was it, it, we talked about that in another episode yeah it was like the uh it was the banking question like should we just have banks be data brokers and i think my answer was no <laughs> <laughs> you said that's a terrible idea that's a bad terrible idea, idea. <laughs> that panel was very funny to me because you have pedro who's outspoken you have you know myself who's pretty outspoken and you had we had heather sussman 
who was at Ropes at the time and now is at Oric, who is also very outspoken. And then we had Reed Freeman, who is very not outspoken, uh, super sharp, intelligent dude. Uh, he with Wilmer Hale and now Venable and like knows ad tech inside and out, but he's very rules based. Um, yeah, yeah. I thought that was an interesting mix of people. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad he didn't field the bank question. That's, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> That was good times, man. That was good times. So, Vivek, how, like, let's go. Like, how'd you get into it? Like, uh, what's how'd you get into the game? Into the game. Um, I feel like I've always been in the game. Uh, I mean, look, I, I went to law school. I didn't know anything about privacy. I didn't know anything about kind of what an in-house lawyer was. I didn't know a single lawyer until after I started law school. Um, and I thought I was going to do criminal law. I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. And I spent kind of law school my first few years out I was litigating at a firm I clerked a couple times I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor until I realized you know what I got some very strong views on the criminal justice system maybe maybe that's not the best role for me and I started to think about you know what am I good at what do I like I like technology I like civil rights I like big picture questions about how kind of people manage uh, you know themselves and their private lives and uh, privacy seemed to be a place where I could kind of have those big picture philosophical conversations but still get to dive into the tech um, and where I wouldn't have to be a patent lawyer even though I do some patent work now in my day to day um, and so kind of I, I sort of transitioned from criminal law um, to kind of doing a bit of appellate work and, and class action work around privacy with an eye to always, you know, moving in-house because frankly, I think that's where the most interesting kind of nitty gritty granular privacy questions are asked and answered. Um, and you, yeah. When you made that transition, you were at uh, uh, Gibson Dunn, pretty big law firm. And like that was on the litigation slot, like sort of side of that stuff. Did you, did you like what did you learn there that led you to sort of think okay i want to take part of this but maybe not do do just that right yeah i mean i i loved my time at gibson i i liked being a litigator on on some level <laughs> um it was a great team we got some really interesting cases um and worked on some really difficult questions of law and i was an appellate litigator as well and i liked writing and I liked kind of spending time discussing, like, is the comma here really going to emphasize the right part of that sentence? I liked those discussions. Um, but at the end of the day, the skills I was building, you know, I, I learned a little bit about COPPA and ECPA and, um, you know, basic privacy law. But what I was building was a skill set around, you know, discovery and like how to manage, um, you know, deposition prep and, and skills that weren't necessarily the types of skills that I wanted to, to be building. Um, and I, you know, I was talking to a few people and asked, you know, how do I get to the point where I get to have conversations around, you know, the technology and like what the tech does and how it impacts people in their day to day lives and where appropriate lines for data usage are and, and those aren't the conversations I was at least having at my firm. Um, and they said, you know, you should think about moving in house again. I, I'd never even considered it, <laughs> honestly, until that point. And I, um, I just kind of applied on a whim and I, I got lucky. Um, to, to be able to kind of do this work, which is great. I think there's some luck there, but I think you see, and we can talk about this in hiring, when we're hiring into our teams here in-house now, there's, there's themes that come up when you're looking at who to hire. And some people, some GCs I talk to 
or like, okay, I gotta have someone that's been in house before. Like it's too hard to help someone transition from the differences of a law firm into a company. And I actually like, maybe I used to fall into that camp and I kind of actually maybe go skew the other way or skew the middle now. It really depends on the person because I think a lot of the skills that you see in litigators and M&A in particular translate really well to in-house life if they can make the transition you described, which is going really deep into the technology, going into the business, and that's really just a function of, of sussing out their curiosity level and, and that particular person. Do you guys, how do you, do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that like that, that is the exact, like the skills that a litigator and an M&A lawyer at a firm <laughs> builds, like the attention to detail, the ability to think both kind of granularly about a particular brief or sentence, uh, but also keep that big picture perspective and the ability to balance different projects that are with different clients. Like all of those are useful skills, um, but you need to sort of balance that out with um, kind of curiosity, willingness to do stuff that isn't in your bucket, um, kind of the business sense, the ability to either have it, develop it, or want to develop it. And I think like I struggled a bit when I started in-house because I didn't have it. Um, and it took me a while to feel like I could really think about the business's interests. Um, and then I think the biggest, when I'm hiring people from law firms, like to me, the biggest indicator is like, can they zoom out of a particular problem or issue mm -hmm. and think about the issue from someone else's perspective, whether it's the regulator or you know the public's perspective. I think that's such an important part of being a good privacy lawyer. And that's not a skill set that I think many big law folks necessarily have. I agree. I, I agree with what you said first of some of the transferable skills. And I also agree on some of the hesitation that I pick up on. Like, well, let me, let me say it this way. I don't think law firms are a good training ground for in-house lawyers. I don't think so. Now that's where most in-house lawyers come from me, you, all three of us included um, uh, the good ones and the bad ones. But it, I don't, I, I think, on the organization side, ability to handle a lot of work at the same time side, dealing with pressure, all of those things are uh, uh, obviously transferable skills, but they're not unique to law firms, right? Like you can get that as, as a firefighter, okay? Like that's not, that's not anything innate to the law firm. What is innate to law firms though, is looking backwards for answers, right? So we've got this legal problem, let's spend 10 hours researching cases from the 1900s to figure out what the answer is. Like that is not a way to practice in-house, especially not at the kind of companies that we work at, right? Like, a lot of our solutioning is forward facing. Like in privacy, for example, we don't have the benefit of looking back to see what like white dudes were thinking about our problems in the 1930s, right? We have to try to solve these for ourselves. And I think that's a difficult transition for a lot of in-house lawyers, which they say, well, here's how we did this at this other place, or here's how, we thought about this 10 years ago. I don't care because the, it's changed so much. And we all work at tech companies where the whole point of the organization and the ethos of many of them is to innovate and change and disrupt. I think that's hard for a lot of in-house lawyers, my, my take. I think I mean, what, me, a lot of uh, law firm lawyers transitioning to in-house lawyers. I think, I think what helps, I think what we discussed helps like when the profile of that person within their law firm has been in certain areas, I think it's an easier transition. I still think it's difficult. And I still agree with you that it's not made perfectly or tailored perfectly for that transition. But there's something about litigation and M&A in particular, just in my opinion, with really, they're large, sometimes messy projects. 
And that sort of lends itself in a funny way to, to kind of what we, what we're trying to achieve. I mean, it's, it's, those projects are inherently messy just because there are so many moving parts and so many different things to corral. And when someone has shown acumen for doing that, um, forget the substance, <laughs> like the substance just sort of like kind of has to be there or, or, or they need to be able to get the answer as a, and know that they need to go get the answer. Uh, it's really more to me about the, the fundamentals. And I think you're right, Pedro, like I wouldn't hire some, or I'd be hesitant to hire someone that did a whole lot, a whole lot of real estate work. Like, I just don't think that like, or tax, you know, that's not inherently transferable while tech transactions or IP or some of these other areas might have more. Yeah. And I think part of it is also just like both the M&A skill set and the litigation skill set. You have to be thinking about the ways that things can go wrong on a broader perspective than just like this litigation we may lose. It's like, what will a loss do to this client longer term? Am I setting bad precedent on the M&A side? Obviously, you're thinking about integration issues and ways that there could be kind of you know, at post close what could happen and you just have to be again zooming out and thinking about things at a different level than like I get a question about this tax code provision here is an answer um, not to speak poorly of tax lawyers there I'm very strategic tax lawyers out there but the skill set that you build I think in, in litigation or M&A seems easily more easily transferable generally we've tended we've tended to sort of crap on tax lawyers in this show and I and I like I don't think like not purposefully at all like I, I agree with you I actually know a lot of really good ones and really effective ones so I don't I know I went to the University of Florida Law School which prides itself on being you know top tax law program. It is. I think it's like one or two in the country every year. And uh, I took one income taxation class. Boy, oh boy, that was a fun time. Our friend Julia Shulman was on and said that was her original idea was to go be a tax lawyer. Wow. She, like she gave up pretty quickly. So maybe it's our group of friends. <laughs> I'll say this though, like to you, I, I, I can hear both, like I hear you guys on the transferability of like necessary skills you get in the M&A practice in-house, but like scenario experience being a lot similar to what we do in-house as privacy or just as in-houses in general. I, I'm struggling, and maybe it's because I've never been a litigator, uh, but I'm struggling to see the litigation part as transferable because I think of, as a non-litigator, I think of litigators as procedural and like focusing on like tactics and, and then, you know, these kind of things. I don't think I'll that's make one. I'll make one comment and then I want to hear Vivek. Like there's a reason that in really large companies, really large ones, and you, you both have more experience than I do probably in the, in the super large company, but I've been in a large company and there's a reason that when, when the GC role all of a sudden opens up, there's a few people internally that are getting considered and it's usually a litigation person is one of them. And one of the reasons I think is because they, it's a lot like privacy and it's a lot like corporate work. It spans across the business units. You have to understand the entire business. So maybe you're right, Pedro, from an outside counsel viewpoint, maybe it's a little less transferable, but all of a sudden when that person goes in-house and they've, they've got both experiences, then they're in-house and they're dealing with you know, if the litigation is, if, if the litigation load is heavy, you're dealing with uh, board level issues. So like company level insurance issues, optics, you know, if you're a public company, the optics of those lawsuits. And so that's why those people, I think if, 
if they make the adjustment, they go in-house, then they tend to rise up to the top. And I do think that there are some kind of, I, I totally agree with that, Andy, but I think there also are some litigation skills that really do help make a good privacy or just general in-house lawyer. I think, you know, some examples are like writing really concisely for a non-technical audience. Like it's true that litigators very much focus on like procedure of discovery, but at the end of the day, they need to be able to communicate to a judge or a jury or a set of appellate judges or whatever, whoever their audience is, it's not going to be a technologist. And so being able to kind of interface with the subject matter experts, particularly if you're doing like IP work or securities work where you deal with experts, um, being able to take that expertise, ingest it, understand it, and then regurgitate it to someone who is not an expert is a really useful skill set that I use kind of every day in everything that I do. Well, that is an incredibly incisive and critical point. Like uh, at a company, I had a litigation. Um, shout out to Scott Lashway, rep Manat, rep well, he was at Honda Knight then, but representing us in a very like ad tech, very complex lawsuit. And the writing was, was key. He spent a ton of time with us with getting like whiteboarding and getting technical so that the writing could be digestible by a federal judge or, or, or whoever, like whoever's going to be reading that, that judges, those people working for the judge or whoever was going to, going to read that and digest it. And, uh, yeah, that, that point can't be made well enough. That writing part is a big deal. And Pedro, you made this point um, when Bert, Bert uh, you talked about the email with Bert Kaminsky, where like helping you kind of write for that different audience. Yeah, I mean, I totally hear where you guys are coming from. I think I'm just biased. And my experience with litigators has not been that good. Like I've been the guy rewriting this brief for this court uh, that was written by White Shoe Law Firm because I can't understand it and I have a technical background. So I'm thinking, how's this old white guy, uh, you know, in, on the DC circuit gonna figure this thing out? And, you know, I did work at the Justice Department where they have a couple of litigators. Yeah. And I will say that most of them, and again, I think some of this is generational, but not most of them, but many of them would email and the entire email would be in the subject line, you know? So like, so like I don't want, you know, I, okay, I'm bashing litigators, you know, I think we gave a oh, shot. But, so one of, the reasons, one of the reasons it worked well in that instance was we iterated together on a lot of it. There was a yeah. lot of back and forth. So you're correct. It's like, it just will always kind of sometimes maybe depend on person, the law firm, their approach, the specific lawsuit. So and I think my, like my goal as an in-house or in a non-litigation role is to avoid litigation a lot, right? Like, right. And so a lot of my work is to try to protect us from the point where we've got to call the litigation department or outside counsel to help us do things. So maybe I've just got a, you know, I've got a phobia now. Maybe that's Well, and I, I will say that's the other area where I do think there are directly transferable skills. And it's like, I, I have experience that's kind of in my blood as to like, what are the documents that will come out in a litigation? How will they come out? What is admissible evidence? Like that is kind of second nature to me. So when I'm thinking about framing an issue, I'm always at the back of my mind thinking about how it will be uh, kind of used against me if things go bad. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's not necessarily the most important skill for a privacy lawyer to have, but particularly now in my role where I'm doing privacy and litigation and IP, um, kind of being conscious of and being able to communicate with people about um, you know, let's let's make sure that we're thinking about how to make sure that everyone after the fact understands we're doing this for the right reasons. Um, I, I think it's a useful skill set as well. Yeah, I like that skill set, Steve, because that one is it helps manage risk, right? Exactly. And 
forward facing that this that skill set I, I can appreciate. Anyway, I want to I want to tie this to the three amigos quickly. Like I I read this quote from the movie. I hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen this quote in a while. I'm going to read it to you quickly. It's a speech made by this. I think the Steve Martin character, like at the end of the movie, and El Guapo is the bad guy. Um, and he says, in a way, all of us has an El Guapo to face. For some, shyness might be their El Guapo. For others, a lack of education might be their El Guapo. For us, El Guapo is a big, dangerous man who wants to kill us. But as sure as my name is Lucky Day, the people of Santa Poco can conquer their own personal El Guapo, who also happens to be the actual El Guapo. <laughs> so I love that line. But like, so uh, two questions. One, Pedro, in-house lawyers, is litigation the El Guapo, the enemy we're always trying to avoid? I, well, I, not the litigation team or litigator. No, 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 like the thing. I think, yeah, I, I think as a lawyer at a corporation, one of your fundamental responsibilities is to keep the company out of trouble. And what that usually means is you're in court, right? It can mean other things, but I mean, from the legal department standpoint, I think, yeah, you can think of litigation as El Guapo of the corporate legal department, which you're either fighting or avoiding, right? I don't know, maybe it makes it differently, but that, that, I think that's good. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true of kind of most companies, but the reason I think I like being in-house in tech on the privacy end is because our decisions are, you know, obviously we're risk mitigating and we're mitigating against the risk of litigation, but we also get to kind of think about the product itself and like, what is the right thing to do here? What's better for society? How will consumers perceive what we're doing with their data? There's a big picture element. And to me, the El Guapo is like a front page of the New York Times and like, look at what this company did, the decisions they made. That fighting against that honestly keeps me up at night much more than, you know, litigation here or there. No, there's in product counseling in particular, there's a bunch of mini El Guapos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything is a mini El Guapo. They're everywhere. Yeah. And, and it's privacy by El Guapo. <laughs> <laughs> PBG. And can I say a thing? Can I say a thing? This is not related, but it's on my mind. Shout out to real Mexicans who this movie is trying to portray. <laughs> can I get a shout out to real Mexicans? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm looking at the three amigos and I'm thinking they could never make this movie today. Like what in the hell is going on here? This movie is on PC <laughs> in every way, uh, period, full stop. Uh, Shout uh, out to real Mexicans. Um, that, that's, that's what I got there. But um, no, I like what Vivek said about, uh, there are multiple El Guapos, but a, a, a big one that I think about a lot that sometimes it's, it's just intuitive, but he articulated it well is the public perception, you know, impact to customer, impact to the public El Guapo. Uh, I don't I know had, if I call the media uh, El Guapo, but the, what the media says can be El Guapo. I had a yeah. conversation, um, and this comes into play a lot when you're, <clears throat> when you are, um, as we've all been on the vendor side or the smaller side when you're dealing with an enterprise customer. And they say to you, listen, I understand that, you know, they're put, trying to put their commercial terms on us, you know, big, big liability cap, no liability cap, big indemnities, we're a small fish, you know, I'm saying, how can I, 
I'm using all my weapons in my small vendor arsenal on them, you know, killing them with kindness saying like, look, I really want to do this deal with your logo is amazing. We want to have your logo, but I can't go to the board and tell them it's fraught with risk. And so we have these conversations and, and once I was having one recently with a pretty big customer and the guy on the other side said something, you know, he said something that we hear a lot, which is, I hear you. I get it. I totally get where you're coming from. If there's a huge problem, the issue for me is less about the liability cap and less about the money and the indemnity. And it's just public perception that we used a vendor and the vendor had an issue. And so, you know, then when you get to that point in the conversation, it actually somewhat gets easier. It's like, is there a solution or not? You know, if there's, if there isn't one, then we have to part ways. Luckily, nine times out of 10, there is a solution. It's probably just a larger liability cap or, or some other commercial solution, but it's a good point, right? I mean, it's that perception is bigger than almost anything. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of the future, like Vivek, I wanna ask you this because you and I talk about like abstract theoretical things all the time. Um, what is the next privacy let's stick with El Guapo what's the next big privacy challenge or privacy El Guapo like what's coming down the pike what or in your point of view it doesn't necessarily have to affect your business in general or whatever but what do you see as the next big challenge yeah it's a I mean that's a tough question I mean there's so many we are in a world of, of multiple El Guapos um, I mean the one that kind of I think about a lot is uh, and I know that a million people talk about this this isn't anything new um, but the intersection of privacy and competition um, and the kind of misuse of privacy as a basis to consolidate, you know, monopolistic power or push down competitive, push out competitors, the use of privacy to build a moat, um, I think is almost an intractable problem, particularly, you know, given that many regulators handle both privacy and competition. Yeah. I just, it seems like a really difficult problem that's gonna present issues in almost every sphere of kind of how we interact with technology. Um, and I, I don't see how we fix it. it. It's something that really worries me. Is it unfixable because of the inherent, and we've talked about this before, but like the inherent slowness of that, um, that antitrust process in the United States? like. The technology in general just moves so quickly. Is is that the issue, or are there other issues that that make it so difficult? I think Can I say a thing? Oh yeah, please. Yeah, so I'm with Vivek on this, by the way, 100%. Like, I, I don't think it's about the technology emerging too quickly for antitrust. Not at least not the point that Vivek was making. I think what it is is using privacy compliance strategy things under the veil of well, we're trying to protect people's privacy. Yep. To, Exclude competition. Exactly. Uh, there's a company out there with a, a, an interesting multicolored logo um, that has been accused of this, right? And oh, I, 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 oh, obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Weaponizing privacy controls as a way to, uh, you know, uh, these are the allegations, but like, uh, uh, you know, to limit existing competition and to uh, kind of present really difficult challenges for emerging competitors, right? I think that is a real issue and there's a real tension there um, uh, because the legal arguments for doing it are good, are strong. Like, hey, no, we're, yeah, not, exactly. we're not trying to squash, squash our 
competition. We're just trying to protect people's privacy and we have the scale and scope to do it this way and we're doing it this way and we're following the letter of the privacy requirement law or right. whatever it is. Um, meanwhile, the result that comes out of that is, well, nobody can enter the market because you've consolidated, you've created a moat, a walled garden, whatever. Super, super interesting legal issue uh, that I've been kind of tackling for a couple of years since before I came to Salesforce and uh, I don't know the answer now turning to you Vivek with the impossible question is <laughs> like how do we yeah like how do we talk about this in a way that makes sense based on what we just talked about like how do we do that yeah it's a it's a difficult question if I could just kind of return to Andy's question and park yours for a bit Pedro yeah. um, like to me I think the concern isn't necessarily Andy that it's just a slow time frame I think that's that's an issue obviously but it's the issue that Pedro just mentioned about that tension right like both competition law and privacy law are about protecting consumers. And how is a regulator that's asked to do both able to say, no, this privacy justification, which is probably very real, right? Like there, again, there are real reasons not to want to transmit data freely and openly if you're asked to protect it as a big platform. How are you as a regulator asked to or supposed to balance that risk to consumers with the competitive risk, which is more indirect, it's harder to explain and translate to a consumer audience that understands privacy maybe, um, but it's, it's gonna be harder for them to understand, you know, yes, we're allowing them to do more stuff with your data because it'll be worse for you in the long run because of competition. Like it, it's, it's an easier ask for regulators to push on privacy um, than to push on competition. I think with this set of like maybe less direct uh, competitive results and effects, it's not like an increased price that's easy to see. Um, if that makes sense. But and I think it's a difficult harm analysis, right? Yeah, like, exactly. It's not one to one. It's not like, well, is the privacy harm worse than the anti-competitive exactly. harm to the consumer? Like that's not a that's not a good analysis. That's no. not the premise from which to analyze either one of those issues. So then it's, well, should we ask it differently? Is how do we minimize the amount of harm uh and in choosing which one of these to punish or yeah. or allow? Like it these are not ways to form enforcement actions right like right it's it's I, i'm with the big 100 on this I, I don't know how we're going to resolve that tension but it exists and i think there's evidence to support that some companies are well, are aware of this and are using this as a strategy is is like well you know we're going to use these privacy protections and uh, you know and, and and implement these changes under the guise of it's better for i don't know gdpr compliance but the end result is, well, now we've just literally locked out our competition. But that's not what we meant. We, we, we meant to do this other thing. Yeah it's, a, yeah, it's a hard question, right? I mean, some of it is just business. Yeah. There's a, there's a percentage of it, which is simply just operating a business. Like, Absolutely. So there's a, there's a line there. And where is that line? And, and I think it's really unclear what the harm is to consumers on both of those fronts. Exactly. Because so much of our society is is we don't have to just pick on Huli or, or, or you know, or a big platform. Like I'm logged in to a platform. There are many ubiquitous platforms. I'm logged in. I'm bought into that service. I'm in like email, whatever. I'm into that service. Give me more services. The more you can give to me, the better. I got devices in my house. I've got devices in my car. I'm walking around with a device. It's so 
helpful and so convenient in today's society. So where's the line with what's actually hurting me as a person versus protecting my privacy versus like, I, okay, well, I can only go search on one, realistically, maybe only one or two platforms. Can I run an effective internet? Yeah, it's, it's like proving the value of an intelligence service, right? Like, how do you prove the sort of hypothetical of like, this would have been better for you if it didn't happen the way that it did. It's just, it's really hard to prove that or even to s convey it in a way that is convincing. I mean, who knows what would have happened, um, which is just part of the difficulty with, I think you're right, both privacy and competition. As you, as you joined Shopify and went through a large growth period and you scale from something, you know, you could talk about this, like the size you joined to the size you are now, um, like, do you do these issues then start to creep in and start to affect you? And at what point did you have to start thinking about these things in terms of Shopify or or do you still not have to? Um, I mean, I don't know that I we, we certainly think about these issues, um, you know, both on the, the short time frame in terms of like, how, how do we interact with some of these large platforms and um, is is their justification they're providing us for why they can't give our customers certain data points? Is that a real justification? Is it a real privacy concern? Is it something where we should push back? Can we push back? Yeah. Um, I think it manifests in, in many ways like that. Um, and in the longer term, you know, I think some of the conversations we have are around, you know, let's take a, an example of the Digital Services Act in Europe. Um, it's a huge, huge set of proposals that is being discussed and um, they're directly trying to get at some of these questions, right? Like how do platforms, tech platforms, um, kind of balance competitive concerns with things like data protection, platform protection, content moderation? How, how should they be balancing those concerns? Um, and kind of making sure that, you know, because we're so focused on those large platforms, we're not painting with so broad a brush that we actually end up in a worse state for consumers and for competition, frankly. I think that um, that's kind of one area where we're trying to be a little bit more thoughtful and it does play a big role in, I think, my day-to-day -day job, just making sure that I'm thinking about the world and the trajectory it's on from the perspective of not even just Shopify, but our customers, which are mom and pop businesses that operate in a world dominated by these large platforms. I was going to say that, and that's got to feel good to work for a business that has that scope, right? Like that scope of consideration. You do need to think about your customers. You need to think about the end customer of that customer. Yep. The experience. Um, and, and that's one of the nice things about kind of the model of Shopify and other businesses like it, where it's, you know, I, I had this, I had this at Ameritrade in some level, on some level, providing the backbone of a bunch of different types of services for people to then deliver those to others. And um, that's really interesting, must be really interesting for you. Yeah, it makes the privacy work super fun because you're not just thinking about like, is this product built in a privacy friendly way? You're thinking about how do I convey that to someone who doesn't know anything about privacy? How do I set default so that if they don't know anything, they make the right choice? And then how do I train them or give them the education without giving them legal advice to be able to answer the questions and provide the disclosures they need to their own end customers? Yeah. I was just going to ask, um, a little bit of a different topic, but somewhat related. 
Shopify is not an American company. And I think there's a lot of suspicion by the European DPAs and European authorities about American companies, which has driven a lot of activity, enforcement activity, investigation, whatever. Is it different because you guys are based in Canada? Do you see a different, I mean, you've worked for an American company, whatever. Like, is, is the dynamic with the European data protection authorities different, the same? And if it's different, like, how is it different? I think it is different. I think we don't get kind of viewed as um, skeptically, I would say, uh, both by, I would say, you know, DPAs for sure in Europe, but also, you know, law enforcement authorities, um, other types of regulators. I think they are so used to just kind of narrowing their eyes when they see a U.S. company. And even though, you know, I'm a U.S. lawyer that is providing advice to a Canadian company, um, I think we do get kind of put in a different bucket. It's I will say it's it's not a bucket that's too far. <laughs> we're still viewed as non-European. We're outsiders, um, but it, it is nice to come in um, with like a little bit less skepticism. Or Canada's hostility. been in, people forget this. Canada's been in the privacy game for a long time. A long like, yeah, it's not like they're they're OG. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. have had a law for a while. Uh, it's been in effect, and uh, my, my Canadian privacy council always reminds me of this. <laughs> And it's nice. I mean, they, the Canadian government spends so much time and effort into thinking about these issues, building relationships across borders. Um, and so we often go in the com communications or conversations with regulators that have an existing relationship with, you know, various folks in Canada. And it just, it makes the conversations a little bit easier on that side. Do you use the shop app, Andy? No. You're struggling. It's my. It's literally like you know how you can measure like how much time you spend on each app. It's one of my top five apps on my phone. Really? You put me onto it. Like, obviously, it's a Shopify app, and um, I buy so much shit on the internet, right? <laughs> and it just kind of tells me where everything is. It, you know, it lets me know it's at my door. It lets me know it's in transit. But the best part is, kind of in a Facebooky, Googly way, it starts to realize what I like and offers me more of that. Now, when you're buying candles, let me tell you, that's super helpful, man. So I love this app and I didn't realize how much adoption it had until I downloaded it a couple months ago, but it's a super cool app. Anyway, just shout out to the shop app. I use it every day. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a great example of an app using your data. Um, they had to be thoughtful and, and conduct uh, privacy by design, and even to build, even to build the, the shopping functionality, but much less the functionality you just mentioned, right? Makes our lives better, makes our lives uh, easier, especially in a time like this when um, e-commerce is probably up, people are home, they're, they're not going out as much. Um, it's a good story to me. It's a good privacy story. Yeah. yeah, and it, it it feels good to be at a place where you can see the effect, the positive effects it's having. I mean, the number of stories, um, you know, we occasionally get to hear, you know, testimonials from merchants who, you know, had a completely offline business and had to turn online because of COVID or what have you. And it feels good to, to hear their story and perspective of, you know, why um, you know, our, some of our decisions around the privacy uh, protections we put into place, how they sort of made their lives easier as they were translating into a new, completely new media. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, like Shopify, you, you get a sense of the look and feel for a Shopify online store. And once you figure it out, you're like, holy crap, 
everyone uses it, right? Once you leave the Amazon ecosystem, it's like, it's hard not to be engaged in commerce and not be on the Shopify platform. So like, super congratulations. And I think part of the reason it's become so ubiquitous to your point, like you don't have to be a tech genius to open a Shopify store. Like it just works, man. I don't know. I'm really impressed by the service and, 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 and what it's done during COVID, especially for like minority owned businesses, small businesses, um, you know, woman owned businesses and uh, yeah, shout out to, to you guys. It's like, I think you've saved a lot of entrepreneurs you know, in the last six months. That's Eight awesome. Months. Uh, so we got to finish up here soon, but uh, we can, uh, I got one more memory to share. We could reminisce a little bit. What year was it? We went to Washington DC. We got together the night before the IAPP conference with my law school friend, the four of us. Yes. We had many cocktails and then we, <laughs> we were just all over. We went to Haleo. All over Trump. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know, I don't know what, <laughs> whether it was the election or just before the election or just after the election. Probably just after. Uh, <laughs> we went to Haleo. I remember that. Yep, I remember yeah. that, too. And yeah, I, I don't remember much else, but I think that has to do with the cocktails. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were, I'm gonna pretend I remember. <laughs> do we go to Haleo first, second, or third? Because I have no idea. I remember uh, Haleo. <laughs> I remember your buddy. He was cool. Um, yeah. And uh, and honestly, I just remember just banging him back. And I think we were recovering from the election. And I think that's yeah, I think so. Uh, Jose Andres the chef at Haleo is a superstar during this mm -hmm. pandemic. Yeah. I mean, during everything, right? Like, during, during Rico, just what an incredible guy. During everything. So I'm a shout out to, to Haleo, <laughs> Jose Andres and, and our support, you know, led, led to Absolutely. World Kitchen. When, 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 we get, when we go back to the Global Summit, hopefully next year, I'm hoping, um, Haleo it is, we gotta do it. All right, deal. Deal. Vivek, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for Thank having you. me. Uh, my, my two amigos, thanks yep. for, for having me. <laughs> so, yep, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. All right, take care. Bye. Bye.